They tell a story when Henry Kissinger became the Secretary of State and all the heads of state from all around the world send them congratulatory notes. So Golda Meir, Prime Minister of Israel at the time, sends him a beautiful letter congratulating him, congratulating uh, Henry Kissinger for his, for his uh, office. Uh, the Secretary of State writes back to Golda Meir, thank you so much for your warm letter. And at the bottom of the letter he writes, P.S., I just want you to know that I'm an American, first and foremost. Then I'm the Secretary of State. And thirdly, I'm a Jew. In other words, Israel shouldn't have any expectations. The first Jew is Secretary of State. They're going to get any special treatment. Golda Meir responds. She writes back. Dear Henry, thank you so much for your, for your notes. And she writes, P.S. I think we're going to have a wonderful relationship. See, here in Israel, we read from right to left. <laughs> so let's view Mashiach. Let's approach it from right to left. Actually, the whole concept of Mashiach is actually a purely Jewish concept. You don't find it in any of the ancient mythologies, the whole idea that one day the world will change for the better and there will be a total transformation and this will come about as a result of our actions. And not only our actions, but even our attitudes and beliefs. This is a purely Jewish concept. This is actually the theme that runs through the entire Torah, beginning with Adam, that the belief, not only in the possibility of change, but the belief in the inevitability of change, and that we are agents of change through our behavior and through our, even, even through our attitudes and beliefs. And universally, doctors will tell you that Jews are from their most optimistic patients. Even when we face hopeless situations, the optimism and the faith and the confidence and the trust that somehow things, things will turn out right. You know, how ironic that the Jewish people who have suffered more than anyone and we have experienced, we have been at the receiving end of all the evil in this world, the brutality. And we know better than anyone the meaning, the deception, the lies, the blood libels. And yet, the Jewish people are the most optimistic, while many others are whistling past the grave. We Jews celebrate life in the here and now. But the question is, how can we be so positive and be so hopeful when thousands of years have gone by, more than half of our existence as a people? We are now in our present exile. We're close to 2,000 years in this exile. And despite all the promises for Mashiach, yet it hasn't materialized. How is it possible how do we keep the faith? How, do we, how are we still so optimistic and so hopeful and so positive? You know, in the 13 principles of faith, the 12th principle, an imam, I believe, with the coming of Mashiach, and we add 
This is not a question. Even though he tarries, is not a question. If you want to start asking questions, you can ask a question on each and every one of the 12 principles, uh, 13 principles of faith. God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Well, how do you explain righteous people who suffer? We don't ask any questions. Because for the believer, there are no questions. And for the non-believer, there are no answers. We believe. Although he tarries, is not a question. It's a statement. We're saying a statement, a fact, that although he tarries, and every day that Mashiach doesn't come, is a bitter letdown and disappointment for us, because we're so hopeful and so optimistic. And every day that, that this Mashiach doesn't materialize is a disappointment. And nevertheless, although he tarries, the next day, we continue and we go on and we're even more hopeful, even more optimistic. But the question is how? You know, the more things change, the more they seem to stay the same. Just what's going on, just read the headlines these very days. Israel is more isolated than ever. The embassy was just burnt down just the other day. They're planning Durban 3, right in our backyard, here in Manhattan. This anti-Semitic blood libel against Israel, the Jew of the world today. The overwhelming majority of the nations are gathering together in the next week or so to vote for a so-called Palestinian state. The Jew has never been more isolated. So how... How is it possible that we should be so optimistic and hopeful? And Well, to understand this, let's try to answer this with another question. You know, Jews always like to answer questions, one question with another question. Someone once asked a rabbi, he says, why is it that Jews always answer a question with a question? And the rabbi answered, why not? Well, there is a... Um, Maimonides describes the era of Mashiach and he describes Mashiach as a purely natural phenomenon. He says when it says in the prophets that the wolf will lie with the sheep, with the lamb, he says it doesn't mean literally, it's just a parable. The Jewish people are compared to the lamb where a sheep surrounded by 70 wolves and Mashiach will come, there will no longer be any anti-Semitism. But Mashiach doesn't have to perform any miracles. Mashiach will be a completely natural phenomenon. And the question is, to us it seems like Mashiach is the most unnatural, supernatural phenomenon. How can Maimonides say that Mashiach is so natural? And to say that the wolf will, la- will lie with the lamb seems more believable than to say that there will be a world without any, any anti-Semitism, a world without envy, a world without jealousy, a world without hatred, that all of this can come about naturally. And why is it so important for Maimonides to establish that Mashiach, which again is a purely Jewish concept, is essentially a purely natural phenomenon, when Maimonides himself writes in his famous letter 
in the letter of Tchiyat HaMesim, Maimonides writes that he's not arguing with those who claim that maybe the verse means literally, that miraculously the lamb will lie with a wolf. The wolf will lie with a lamb. It reminds me of the story in the... Uh, there is a famous zoo, the San Diego Zoo. And they have a display there. The wolf will lie with a lamb. And once the donors to the zoo were being given the VIP tour, and they were astonished to see this display. And you look inside and you see there's a wolf and there's a lamb. And they're lying together. And they turn to the, to the head of the, uh, the uh, zoo. He says, how is this possible? I mean, this is messianic. He says, no, it's no, it's no big deal. Every day we change the lamb. But Maimonides says that he has no problem with those who interpret the verse that it means literally, that it will be miraculously. He's just saying that there's no, there's no, you don't have to say that it means literally. You can say it means, it means it's, it's, that it's only a parable. But the question is, why is Maimonides established halachically? Why is it so essential? Why is it so important to establish that the whole concept of Mashiach is a purely natural phenomenon? And to understand this, we have to understand a general principle, a general law in the Torah, the laws of purity and impurity. The Torah says that when something pure touches something impure, even if it brushes against something impure, for example, with your, with your nails or just the hair, your hair touches something that's impure, the person becomes impure. And this is a very puzzling and astonishing halacha. Because you wonder to yourself, why isn't it the reverse? Shouldn't it be that when something impure comes in contact with something that's pure, the impurity is transformed and becomes pure. Which one is more powerful? Is purity and holiness so fragile that the moment it comes in contact with and the moment it brushes against something impure, it loses its purity? What's more powerful? What's stronger? The forces of purity or the forces of impurity? And this is the approach of all other religions besides Judaism. That this world is basically a very harsh and a very impure world. Man is born in sin. This world is a maya. And the focus and the goal is the afterlife. Heaven, love, spirituality meditation, something otherworldly. But this world, in all its coarseness and its crassness, is the antithesis of everything that's good, godly, and holy, and wholesome. And yet Judaism, in a startling revelation that only happened once in history and will never be repeated again, at Mount Sinai, God revealed to us through his Torah, 
a startling truth that turns everything on its head, that the exact opposite is true. That what we seem to take as natural, to be natural, we take, for example, our bad feelings, that's natural. Those few moments of grace that we have, we feel inspired and connected and ennobled, those fleeting moments seem to us to be gifts, some heavenly gifts, otherworldly gifts, not part of our reality. And to feel bad, that is normal, that is natural. You know the, the Jewish telegram? A few words, start worrying, details to follow. That's a natural state of being. Comes along the Torah, Hashem says, it's, it's just the opposite. You have it all wrong. It's on the contrary. What's natural is to feel wholesome, to feel good, to feel wholesome and connected. We feel our bad feelings are just a measure of the distance of how alienated and how distant we are from our core selves, from our true selves. That's why the Torah says when God created the world, the world is a garden of Eden. Because that is our natural state. We all start out, we're all born, we're babies, we're children, we're innocent, we're pure. That is our core, that is our essence, and that remains so. If you scratch the surface, underneath the surface, that is our true essence, that is our true reality. The status quo is completely unnatural. There's nothing unnatural about Mashiach. There's nothing unnatural about a state of wholesomeness. On the contrary, that is the most natural state. It's everything else that's a a distortion. And it takes an inordinate amount of energy to maintain this distortion. And that's abnormal, and that's unnatural. And that's why the Torah explains why is it that in the laws of purity and impurity, the Torah starts out, this is the mystery, the law of the Torah, the ultimate mystery of the Torah. As the Ur Chaim HaKadosh, Rav Chaim Ben Etter, the contemporary of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, so Rav Ur Chaim explains that this is the ultimate mystery of the Torah. The whole idea of purity and impurity. He says, why is it that this world is so impure, that it's so corrupt, and it's so decadent? The real reason is because this world is essentially pure. And he uses the analogy of honey. He says, flies are attracted to honey. Where are they attracted to? They're attracted to the honey. That's what attracts them. That's why you find it's real food. Where are the worms attracted to? The worms are attracted to real food. They don't touch artificial food, which may look like food and taste like food, but can sit on the shelf for years and they won't even touch it. They'll only go after real food. So on the contrary, the, the reason why this world is so decadent and so corrupt is just proof positive of how ripe with potential this world is, how holy this world is, how this world is the, is the most essential. And the essence of this world is, is really purity. And that explains why, of all the creatures in the universe, man is the only one who suffers from addictions. Angels don't suffer from addictions. Animals don't suffer from addictions. When was the last time you met an animal that overate, that overdrank? Overdosed? 
unless they hang out people with people. Because all other religions look at the same evidence, look at man, and they, they come to the conclusion that man is a beast. Man is brutish and nasty and selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed, and this whole world is just one big illusion and one big lie and deception. And you might as well just quit while you're behind, have faith, and you'll be saved. Judaism, the Torah looks at the same reality. And the Torah comes to the exact opposite conclusion. The Torah says, you know why man is so addicted? It only proves how essentially man is so godly. And because our essence, core and essence is godly, that's why at the very center of our being we have a hunger and a yearning for something infinite for something undefined, for something intangible. But something gets lost in the translation. So we think we're hungry for materialistic things, we're hungry for money, power, fame, which of course could never satisfy that hunger. The more we indulge, we only, we only get even hungrier. It does not satisfy our hunger and need. Because that's not really what we're looking for. The only thing that can satisfy that deep-seated hunger, that insatiable appetite that man has, and only man, why do we have these insatiable appetites? Because we are yearning for something godly, for something that's undefined. And the only thing that can possibly satisfy that hunger is only when we study Torah and we do divine activities, which is otherwise known as mitzvot. That's the only thing that can really connect us and could really satisfy what we're really looking for and yearning for. So on the contrary, it's this very degradation that proves that essentially man's essence is really godly and really holy. As the Baal said, when a person is hungry, when you experience a materialistic pang and hunger, you think it's material. Your body is hungry. It's really a spiritual hunger. But it's translated as a physical hunger. You don't realize the source of this hunger. But really, you're hungering for something godly. Because that is your core and that is your essence. And that explains why the laws of purity and impurity, why the moment you come in contact with, when purity comes in contact with impurity, even if you just brush against impurity, why we're so susceptible to impurity, why immediately you lose that purity. Not because purity is so fragile, on the contrary. Because purity is the essence. And therefore, since it's the essence, it's so real, it's 100%. It can't be 99.9%. It's like, it's like intimacy. You can't be 99.9% present. In order to experience intimacy, you have to be 100% with every fiber of your being and every bone in your body and consciously, subconsciously, every part of you. Because... It's, you're touching something that's essential and that's core. So it's precisely because purity is at your very core and essence and located at the very center of your being. That's why it has to be 100%, not 99.9%. The moment you have the slightest contact with anything impure, it's a contradiction to this reality, which is total and all-encompassing. It's like the difference between your conscious self 
let's say, take for example, intellect, understanding an idea. You can understand an idea, you can partially understand an idea. I get 50% of the concept. I understand 75% of the concept. But when you're dealing with something more profound, something that touches your subconscious, something that's much deeper, your will, or what we call chemistry, there it has to be 100%. When the customer walks into the store, if, if it's not 100%, exactly the way you want it, if it's 99% of what you're looking for, you're out of there. You'll find yourself a different, a different uh, place to do business. It has to be exactly what you want. You know, we're the ultimate critic. If anything is slightly off, if it's not 100% exactly the way we like it and the way we want it to be, we're out of it. Because it's, it's a question of chemistry, something intangible. Either you make that connection or you don't make that connection. It's exactly the way I want it. Imagine you're getting directions and it's very complicated and you follow all the directions to get to your destination. But the last, the last uh, instruction that you receive, instead of making a right turn, you made a left turn. And of course, <laughs> you lost. But you followed 99% of the directions accurately. One little thing I didn't, one detail I didn't follow. You lost. Well, today in the uh, internet age, we can relate to it, right? If you missed that dot before the com, the dot com, you're lost in cyberspace. But you, everything else is correct. It's the smallest detail is missing. You're not there. Because it has to be 100%. So when you're dealing with something that's real, you c- it can't be compartmentalized. It has to be total. Your whole being. So on the contrary, it's this very law that highlights how essential that this is our true natural state of being. Our natural state of being, our core and our essence is purity, wholesomeness, godliness. That is, that is when God created the world, that the world was essentially at its, its true nature, is paradise. Today, it's just a cover-up. We're, we're in exile. We're alienated from ourselves. We're not in touch with ourselves. We're so far removed and so distant from our true nature and our true self. Mashiach, Maimonides is trying to establish for us that Mashiach, which is again a purely Jewish concept, the whole Jewish understanding of Mashiach is, Mashiach is natural. Because being holy and godly and Jewish and wholesome, this is the most natural state in the world. This is reality. It's everything else that's just an an illusion, a dream, an alienation. The fact that we feel bad is just a measure of how distant we are and how alienated we are from our true core and essence, our true self. And that's the ultimate paradox. That in this world, this shattered, fragmented, broken world that we live in, we don't have to look far. We can look in the mirror, we can just read the headlines. In this world, which is so challenged and so confused and there's such a darkness, how this world could evolve and out of this reality will emerge the reality of Mashiach, which is perfection, wholeness, a world where there's no evil, a world where there's no pain, a world 
where there's no death. How could that world evolve naturally out of this world of our present reality? And especially our generation, which is referred to in the Torah as the, as the heels of Mashiach. We are the spiritual midgets. We are the lowest generation, spiritually speaking, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. We are the midgets of all the previous generations. How is it possible that in the, today, here and now, in this day and age, we will be the ones to experience the coming of Mashiach. As the Rebbe would always tell us, is one consistent theme from the first day that he assumed the leadership. He became Rebbe. The Rebbe always reminded us that we are a unique generation of Jews. There's never been a generation like ours and there never will be. We are the transitional generation. We are the last generation of the old order of exile and we will be the first generation of the new order. Of Mashiach. How is it possible? Rabbi Akiva did not merit Mashiach. The Baal Shem Tev did not merit Mashiach. Our ancestors who were spiritual giants and we're the midges standing on their shoulders. We will be the ones to experience wholeness. And the answer is as we say in the L'chad Dodi, we say Friday Friday night, which is also the metaphor, Shabbos. When we, as we enter Shabbos, we make the transition into Shabbos. And Shabbos, the universal Shabbos, is Mashiach. And we say, we refer to Shabbos as Saif Maisev Machshavatchila. It comes at the end of the week, but it's rooted in the beginning, in thought, and in the beginning of thought, in the highest level of thought. It's like when you put words together, when you make a word. A word is made up of letters. But every letter on its own may have a meaning. But it's only when you put the last letter to the word, when you put the last piece of the puzzle, then you see the whole picture. For the first time, the whole, now you put all the letters together, and now you make up a word. The word is not just a collection of letters. The whole is greater than the sum total of its parts. Now suddenly all the letters are elevated to a whole new meaning. Now you see the whole, you see the whole, the whole picture. So it's only when you put the last piece of the puzzle in place. When we, the last generation, the transitional generation, when we put our actions and our good deeds, and that's the last piece of the puzzle, that will create and that creates the critical mass. That creates the wholeness. Suddenly it all comes together and suddenly all the actions and all the good deeds of all our ancestors, their heroic sacrifices, all come together. And then for the first time, we experience wholeness. And then this world will naturally evolve and you'll realize and you'll see that the world, the natural state of the world, at its very core and its very essence is wholesomeness. Purity, holiness, godliness, goodness. And everyone, this will affect not only every Jew in the world, but this will affect all six billion people, every human being. As it says in the Torah, God says, My name is incomplete. 
You're not allowed to mention God's name. You're not allowed to say it, pronounce it as it is spelled. God's name is concealed presently. My throne will be complete because right now God's throne is incomplete. And it's only at that moment that when we reach that critical mass, when Mashiach, when this world, when the will naturally evolve, the world of Geula, redemption, which as the Rebbe always reminded us, the Hebrew words, the, the words for redemption in Geula is the same letters as the Hebrew word for exile, which is Goyla. But by adding the Aleph, one Jew doing one mitzvah, you add the Aleph, and then the Goyla will naturally evolve into Geula, this broken, shattered, fragmented world, a world which is so filled with darkness and lies and confusion and evil. And the Jews have always, we, we always bear the brunt of that. We were the first ones to suffer from that. We know better than anyone how brutish and nasty this world can be, and we're experiencing it at this very moment. And yet this very same world will naturally evolve into Geula, into a world of wholeness, a world of perfection. And that's why a Jew yearns for Mashiach, because this is hardwired into every Jew. Every Jew stood at Sinai. And ever since then, it's been hardwired into ours. We have a, an image, a picture of wholeness and perfection. And that's why a Jew is so restless. All the revolutions in this world were started by Jews. Because we can't make peace with the status quo. We know that perfection and wholeness is not only possible, but inevitable. It's like seeing a picture that's crooked. There's no way in the world, and it bothers you, there's no way in the world that you're going to make the picture even more crooked. You're only going to straighten it out. Why? Because the fact that it bothers you, unless you already knew the way it should be, the way the picture should be, you wouldn't have felt that it's crooked. So the fact that it's bothering you, that it's so crooked, that it's so off, is a proof that you already know how it should be. So the fact that death and evil and pain bothers us so much, is only because it's hardwired into every one of us. We have an image of the way the world once was, the way the world was at Mount Sinai temporarily, the way the world could be, the way the world is presently, potentially, and the way the world inevitably will evolve into, which is the world of Mashiach. And that's why a Jew wakes up every morning and every moment, every waking moment, we yearn, we constantly yearn for the coming of Mashiach. And every day that goes by, we dedicate our lives to make that reality, that that reality should materialize by each and every one of us, rolling up our sleeves, participating, doing one more mitzvah, giving an extra penny to tzedakah, learning an extra minute of Torah, pushing yourself. You're tired, push yourself, learn a little extra, do an extra act of goodness and kindness. Give an extra smile. You ran out of smiles for the day. You reach your quota. A person needs that smile. Push yourself. And by each and every one of us taking that baby step forward, we can tip the scale and we will reach that critical mass and will experience that wholeness that we know deep down is reality. And it's that dream that has kept us going for thousands of years. 
And right now we are at the threshold. And we know it's imminent. We can feel it in our bones. We can feel it with every fiber of our being. We can see it. The revolutions, the changes, the transformations in the Middle East and throughout the world. And we know we're so close. So now is a time to rededicate ourselves and to strengthen ourselves. And with God's help, by the time you're listening to this class, we'll already be celebrating on the Upper East Side of Jerusalem. Thank you.